Gospel of John in 2014. Uh, we're on track now. We've just got to the beginning of um, chapter 7. Uh, remember, in the way, if you missed any of these, by the way, you can catch them all up on our website. You can go and listen to any of the sections you've missed. But chapters 5, 6, and 7 of John's Gospel is what you see in there. You see the rising opposition to Jesus. He's come. The beginning of John, it's a, it makes very clear. Jesus was God. He came to earth. He lived a life. He started demonstrating who he was God. He, he did signs, which point to who he is God. He started teaching people. He started interacting. People had some key dialogues with people. Um, but there's an opposition. There is a kickback to his ministry. People rejecting who he is, rejecting his teaching, saying, you know, we don't believe your God. We, don't, we won't accept who you are, which is something that's still happening 2,000 years later. People resist what God is asking them to do, resist his commands, resist his rule. And Jesus kind of experienced that. So chapter 7, we've seen through chapter 5, chapter 6, this rising level of opposition. And it's only going to crank up and up and up until ultimately it ends in the cross where they conspire to kill him. So, chapter 7, verse 1, let me just read this. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see your works. Sorry, see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after this, his brothers had got, sorry. But after his brothers had gone up the feast, then also he went up, not publicly but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, "Where is he?" And there was so much muttering among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, "No, he's leading the people astray." Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. All right. What's happened is we've had the bread of life, Jesus' famous statement. I am the bread of life. He's fed the 5,000. One of his most famous miracles. He walked on water. He had this um, long teaching where he said he was the bread of life. And as a result of that, he said many people left him. Many people couldn't cope with what he was saying because he was making some pretty hard teaching about who he was and how people should respond to Jesus. Um, and uh, he made that. He asked Peter, he said, well, what do you, what do you think, Peter? And, he, and Peter says, well, you have the words of eternal life. We can't go anywhere because you're the one who's got it. And so we're going to stay with you. But you can feel this opposition rising. And a period after this, it says they're up in Galilee. If you remember how Israel was in that day, you had uh, in the north you had Galilee, where Jesus was from. His disciples were from mainly. And then in the south you had Judea, where it had Jerusalem and kind of the religious authorities, the temples there. That's it. And in the middle there was Samaria, which is a bit that the Jews hated because they were kind of half-breeds of us sort of a, a diluted religion, corrupted religion, and we've had the incident where Jesus has dealt with the Samaritan woman. So they're in the north, um, in Galilee, where Jesus has been teaching. And the other three Gospels mainly focus on Jesus' works in the north. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all focus on all the things he did there, while John tends to focus on the south, in Jerusalem. So basically John omits all the stuff that happens in the north you might read in the other Gospel. His focus is on Jerusalem. And uh, his brothers um, are talking to him about this thing called the Feast of Booth, or the Feast of Tabernacles, it was called. And this feast was to do with the in 
gathering of the harvest that happened uh, when they brought in the grapes and the olives for the harvest. And you read about it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus. And it was a seven-day festival where they celebrated. And on the eighth day, they had an extra big celebration. It was hugely popular. The Jewish historians you see for sale, there's many, many thousands of people came to Jerusalem to celebrate it. Um, it was happening. And so it would be normal then for Jews in, Gal- in Galilee and say, well, we'll go to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. That was a normal um, thing. And what would happen at the festivals, the reason it was called the Feast of Booths, is when the, kind of, the pilgrims arrived, they would make shelters for themselves out of, uh, kind of uh, leaves and branches um, and the palms and other bits and pieces. They'd make these makeshift shelters which they would live in for the duration of the festival. Hence the, the Feast of Booths. And what people would do who lived in houses in Jerusalem, they would make shelters on their roofs that they were living in. So they'd have the house and they'd go onto the roof and they'd make this shelter that they would live in uh, for the sake of the festival. Commemorating the time when they were in the wilderness and they lived kind of in temporary accommodation. So that was what was coming. It was a, a big deal. And as we go on in John's Gospel, we'll find more about this festival because it, was, it had um, significant elements of uh, lamp lighting and water drawing. Um, was part of the festival. And if you know what Jesus said, some of his famous statements, you can see where that's going, but we'll come to that later as we go through the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. And, this, and when he talks about Jesus' brothers, they're the ones questioning him. He actually means his, his physical brothers, or I guess you could say his half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, who would have all been younger than Jesus, because Jesus was their firstborn. And at this point, they were not believers he actually says that. John makes that very clear in verse 5. These guys were not believers at this point. We know they become believers, or at least some of them do, particularly one called James, who becomes a leader in the New Testament church um, at the council. He's the one who stands up and sort of makes a, a decision kind of on um, whether Gentiles should be allowed in. So they, they actually eventually do come to faith, but at this point they're not um, in faith. And they're encouraging Jesus, saying, you know, show yourself. They obviously know there's something about his, their brother. He can do stuff. He can do miracles. People are coming to him, listening to him, crowds. People are getting baptised. Things are going on. And they're saying to him, well, you know, why don't you show yourself? Why don't you make it plain? Why don't you go down to the festival where there's ooze of people and, and, you know, and, and speak plainly and show yourself openly? If you want to be known... That's a great place to do it. But we've seen, as we've gone through John's Gospels, Jesus' resistance to allowing people to have a shallow faith in him. We've seen that in several times, chapter 2, in chapter 4, in chapter 2. Jesus will not accept shallow faith just based on like miracles, flashing, you know, flashing miracles. You know, I'll have faith now. He actually wants people to have a genuine, deep, heartfelt faith in him as a person and not just rely on stuff he can do like he's some kind of genie or magic man or anything like that. He's saying, no, no. So he resists that, you know, open, open kind of, everyone comes to me, aren't I really great? He's saying, no, I don't want to be any part of that. And the reason the brothers are saying that is because they're not believers themselves. They don't fully have faith and trust in him. So their belief is superficial. And they're just saying, you can easily draw a crowd just by doing some miracles, healing someone, which Jesus has already done. Turn water in his eye and feed the 5,000. That would be great at a festival with loads of people there. You know, if you got to feed everybody, they'd all love you. Heal a few sick people, you'd have a massive following, wouldn't it be great? He says, no, I don't want any part of that. And he tells them why he doesn't want any part of that. He basically says, you're part of the world. And, you know, you don't know the timing of God. You don't know what, what it's about. In fact, you're part of the world and the world is evil. 
Usually in John's Gospel, when he talks about the world, it's usually in a negative context. And he's basically saying to his brothers, you're all evil. You know, you don't understand the timing of God. And the world hates me because I expose its works and I tell them they're evil. The things that are going on, the things in man's heart are, are wrong. And I point them out to people and they don't like it. And they don't want it. They're not, they're not aligned with what God's doing. And he's basically saying to his brothers, that's you. You're part of that. You don't understand the timing of God. You don't understand the purposes of God. You don't believe in me. And as a result, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to be a part of it. He basically says, you can go to the feast anytime you want. You, you're, not, you're not in God's timing. You don't follow that. So you just go to the feast. And Jesus is he's, he's, he's saying, in kind of the opposite of that, he's saying, I only follow what my father's doing. I only follow his timing. And as a result, he says he remains in Galilee and they all go off to the feast. But then the story takes a turn in verse 10. Where it says, when the brothers have gone up to the feast, Jesus actually decides he is now it is the right time to go. I will go. But he says, contrary to what they wanted, they wanted public, showy, flashy. They would have wanted uh, you know, a Facebook event. Jesus is coming to the Feast of Booths. Are you going to be part of it? They'd have got his Twitter follow, following kind of right up there. He's coming. He's coming. They'd attract his pros. They'd have put a website up or something like that. But Jesus does the complete opposite. He goes in private. There's no announcements. He goes in secret. He disguises, imagine, disguises himself. He might travel with very few people. Um, and he quietly goes up to the feasts because he doesn't want to draw a crowd for all the wrong reasons. And it says there... But the Jews were looking for him in verse um, 11. They were looking towards him. That's probably a reference to the authorities, because we know at this point the authorities don't like him. They're actually plotting to kill him. They're actually saying, this guy is a problem. We want to deal with him. So they're on the lookout. They're thinking, this guy, Jesus, it's an ideal opportunity with thousands of extra people in Jerusalem that this this kind of um, charlatan is going to show up and cause us problems, cause us problems with the Romans. It's all going to go wrong. So we're on the lookout to address him. So they're looking. And then the, the people, obviously, words got round. Words got round of what Jesus has been doing. He's been gathering crowds. Um, the, the other side of the Jordan, it says, up in Galilee, he's done a whole series of miracles. Great things are happening. The word has travelled. Jesus, Jesus is coming along. He does miracles. He does great things. And they're, they're talking about him. Where is he? Has anyone seen him? You've seen Jesus? Now they wouldn't have had photos or anything like that, so they've just got to rely on someone else saying, that's him over there. That's him. So they're talking about him, and they're actually, then they're also debating and arguing over him, which sounds oddly familiar to what people say today, doesn't it? Some say, he's a good guy. He's a good man. He does good things. We should listen to him. He teaches. You know, he helps people. He, he, he provides food. He heals the sick. This is a good guy. Well, others are saying, he's leading people astray. You know, he's just a fake. He's a phony. You heard some of the things he said about eating and drinking his blood. Oh man, I don't think we can follow this guy. He's not. He's not. Up, you know, he's not on the level. Yet it says, interesting that final verse there. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. They were scared of what the authorities were going to do to Jesus. If they suddenly found themselves talking about him, they were saying, "Are you are you a follower of Jesus?" You know that? So they, there was a level of fear, but people were still talking about him because he was, he was on the horizon. He was doing great things um, around about in the country. Now, what I want to do, now that gears up for what's going to come next. Uh, we look at the rest of chapter 7 where Jesus goes to the feast and he says some shocking and amazing things. But what I want to look at and learn from this passage today is look at particularly the way God works. 
And there's three things I just want to draw out for us. The way God works in his plan. Because I don't know where you are in your life at the moment or what you are looking to the future or reflecting on your past and how God's brought you to this day in this room right now. How you reflect on how God has worked in your life and how you think about it. Because I don't know about you, but when I've been longing for things in God and asking him to move and do things, they haven't always quite worked out how I wanted them. Have you ever had a situation that hasn't quite worked how, how you would have planned it, had you been God? Have you ever prayed those prayers? Lord, if I was in your position, this is what I'd ask you to do. This is what I would do to work out. So would you mind doing that for me? You know, if you're, it might be a situation, we've had one in our life where, you know, we're trying to sell our house and move to another town because we felt God had called us there. And it took us months and months and months to sell our house. And all our neighbours managed to sell our house, but we didn't. And I remember crying out to going, God, how hard is it? These pagans round about, who don't even know you or like you or love you, they're selling their houses and they're getting good deals. And we can't sell our house. Lord, would you please pull your finger out, oh great one. Have you ever had situations like that? Have you seen the situation now where you're longing for something? You're thinking, you know, we want to see this happen. You want to move into what you call this. Maybe God's put something in your heart from years ago. Maybe a calling, a ministry, a nation on your heart where you feel you might end up. Maybe it's a particular role that you might find yourself moving into. Maybe it's things you've seen. God's put a vision in your heart to serve and care for certain people. And you're just not there yet. And you're standing around going, God, what are you doing? It doesn't seem to be happening quite the way you wanted. Or, or you had a plan. You thought, I'll do this. My life will work out like this. And suddenly the plan goes on this way. Because something outside of your control happens. And you find yourself going in a different direction. If you're in any of those, you can identify with any of that. Hopefully what we've got here will help you. And there are three things I just want to talk about. The first one, in the way God works, number one, there is a timing to what God wants to do. There is a timing. Jesus was subject to his father and followed his lead in his timing. He makes statements like, you know, this is, it is not my time. He said that to his brother. It's not my time to go up to the feast. It's not my time to reveal myself, he said. It's, he said, sometimes it's not time for, my, for me to reveal in glory yet. But there is a time coming. He even said, as we looked from the beginning of the gospel, that he talked about when Jesus came, the time had fully come, it said. So there was a right timing in the plan of God for Jesus to even come, be born in that stable in Bethlehem. There is a timing to what God is doing. Now, I don't know if you've thought this through. I was, um, last week I was down in Bedford teaching on, um, they had the students New Frontiers take a year out of the Frontier Project, and I was asked to go and teach it for a day on the doctrine of God. And one of the things we looked at were God's attributes, and one of the things about his attributes was his infinite nature and the fact that he was eternal and outside time. He actually created time and he, he looks down upon time. Time is not something he is subject to, it is subject to him. And because he is eternal, all time is equal at all points to God. It doesn't go in progression. He sees all time at once. So when we think about timing, our view of time is totally different to God's. Because he's outside it and he looks in it. And for him it's all working perfectly, all at the right time and the right pace. When we're in time, we're freaking out because things are taking too long. And God's going, but it's all working out to my plan. If you could see it the way I could see it, you would understand this. And we often find ourselves questioning God like he's forgotten. Lord, do you remember what you said to us as if he could forget? Lord, do you remember you said you'd do that? You would call us to that place? You would work something out? You would bring something into being? 
And um, we, we sometimes feel God's forgotten us or left us or things seem to be taking so much longer than we had anticipated. And if you ever find yourself in that boat, let me just throw things at you, which hopefully will comfort you. But we'll just, I'll just try Here are some characters in the Bible who had to wait for God's timing. The key thing is, look at the number. I put the numbers in years. Okay, Moses, called to be the deliverer of his people. One of the greatest figures in Jewish history. He was known as the prophet. Moses, the giver of the law. One of these kind of great heroes of faith. He, how long did he spend in the wilderness waiting for God to fulfill his word to him? Forty years. I'm not that old yet. So basically, my entire life, plus a little bit, he spent in the wilderness waiting for God to do what he had said he was going to do. Abraham, you will have a son. And through you, through that son, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. And do you know how many descendants you're going to have? They're going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So Abraham's like... Bring it on. We better start. We better start producing kids. If that's going to happen, how long did it wait to his first son, his only son, Isaac, was born? I oh, know his only son, his other one, Ishmael. But his true-born son was 25 years. 25 years it took. Joseph, he was given dreams. Your brothers will bow down to you. Not only your brothers, your, your parents will bow down to you. And he was like, and he, being an arrogant little young boy, he told them all, <laughs> guess what's coming? You're all going to bow to me. All, all those things, they were all going to bow to me. This led to the, the drama of the life of Joseph. But how long did it take before that was filled? 20, over 20 years. And if you know anything about Joseph's life, there was lots of stuff that happened in between that wasn't pleasant. David, anointed king by Samuel. You are my chosen one. You will lead my people. You will sit on the throne of my nation, God said to David. While Saul was king, he said, you're the one. How long did it take for David to become king? About 15 years for that actually to work out. What about the Lord Jesus? He was God. He came to earth. You know, as God. That's a good start in life, isn't it? He came as God. What happened? He came as a baby. Like this big. They don't do anything. Well, they do, but they, what they do is not very useful. Yelling and popping and, you know, nothing else. How long did he wait before God says, the Father said, right, it's now time to kind of get on with it. 30 years around about before he began what he called his public ministry. God's timing. Why so long? Well, we talked about God's view of time as different to us, but often what we find is when God's working on people, it's not just his purpose is working out, purely that, he's actually working on the individual, he's working on their characters. If you look at the characters, take Joseph for instance, when he was the arrogant teenager saying, you're all going to bow to me. Why don't you start now? You know, get the practice in. And then you see him at the end when his brothers are bowing to him because he's the second most powerful man like in the world. And he says to them, what you did for evil, God meant for good. How much has he changed in that time? God has worked on his character in that intervening period. Sometimes we, we pray a lot, God use me, when actually we should be praying, God make me useful. God actually grow me, develop me, work out the things of my character. Because if we don't have the character, whatever God asks us to do will kind of, it can crush us unless God has formed us inside. Even if you take the example of Jesus, there's this interesting comment in Hebrews. Hebrews 5 where it says, Jesus learned obedience. Wait a minute, isn't he God? 
How did he have to learn it? What it doesn't mean is he was ever disobedient. What it means is he hadn't experienced it. And so actually Jesus through his life experienced, learned that obedience, being obedient to his parents as he grew. You know, obedience in what he was doing, in just working an ordinary job. And then in obedience to his father, following his timing in his public ministry. In the waiting, if you find yourself had to wait for something or are waiting for something, God is working on your character. He is forming you and growing you. And if you've, um, if you've, if you've got little children or been around little children, what's one of the hardest things you can ask a child to do? Wait. It's not no, it's just wait. You know, the answer is yes, but just wait. I'm in, right in the middle of something, give me 30 seconds to finish it, then I will do what you ask. I will get you the juice. I will get you that toy down that's too high for you to reach. But you ask a child to wait more than a second, and oh, the trauma, the drama. Like, oh my God, I've got to wait how long? Two whole seconds for you to dry your hands so I can tie your shoelace or something? You know, no, I've just got to wait. And it's the same with us. Sometimes when God just says, Wait. It can be just the most, ah, we've got to wait. But actually God is using that. And one of the things we have to fight in our culture is we live in an instant culture. We want everything now. Microwave meals. You have to make a meal that takes two minutes. That's far too long, isn't it? To put something in the microwave. Bzz, bzz, bzz. You're thinking, come on, two minutes to just warm something up. Far too long. Amazon. Have this thing on Amazon Prime now where you can get everything on 24 hour delivery the next day. But I read in the article they're apparently experimenting with drone delivery where these unmanned drone things will bring it to your house in hours. You're going to be able to click on your click and then literally, and there's some kind of drone, I don't know how it's going to work, will appear at your front doorstep and hover and there'll be your whatever you've ordered. From Amazon, it's just getting quicker and quicker, and we're like instant. We want it now? We want it now, and we treat God the same way. And so, I want to just put that question for you: What are you waiting for, for God? And how are you viewing it? How are you viewing the waiting period? Is the waiting period just a frustration, or something that you're just ignoring, or is waiting period something you're using to, as God develops you and develops your character? Um, for me, one of the things that kind of I experienced in this was. When God first called me into leadership and to be in a position to lead a church and be in that process. And the first time it happened, I had to go back and look this up. Um, but I, I found the date and it happened in uh, beginning in 1998. Last millennia, when you think about that. 1998. Um, God called me. I was in a meeting like this, quite a bit bigger, but this kind of context... And some guys came to preach to another church, one of the preachers there. And at the end of it, they said, I feel we've got some stuff from God for some of you here. So would you mind if we bring it? And the leadership said, yeah, bring it. And one of the guys picked me out and basically prophesied over me and basically said, God is calling you into leadership. Um, God is going to grow you. Um, and God is going to build a church upon you. You're going to lead a church. And he said, actually, but what he's going to spend time doing, I didn't actually listen to I was like, you want me to do what? He says, God is going to spend time going, instead of building up, he's going to go down and build foundations. So when the, when the building comes, the foundations are ready to hold it. And that was in 1998. And I didn't arrive here in Sutton Coalfield uh, with a position kind of as a church leader, if you were, till 2010, 12 years of that process. And there were oodles of things that happened in that process that formed my character. But there were times along that journey where I remember thinking, God, didn't you say something? 
Did you say something to me? Didn't you? You know, you called me out. I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't asking for that. I was really quite against the idea, to be honest. But God put me out. Twelve years it took to come about. There is a timing for what God is doing. But I tell you what, if I had been given the position earlier, I would have done a much poorer job than I'm doing now. You might not think I'm doing a good job now, but it would have been way worse. I'm just saying that. Because I haven't hadn't had the formation that God had put in my life. Number two, there is a way for God to do things. So there's a timing, there's a way. Uh, it says that he went up after his brothers. He said, not publicly, but in private. He said, God has a way of doing things. He has a way of getting to what he wants in your life. And his ways are different to our ways, like that one there. Everyone said, go publicly, go large, go big, so everyone can see you. Get the t-shirts printed, we'll, you know, we'll give them out. No, he said, I want to go in private. And God has different ways of doing it. Think about those characters we mentioned. What was God's way of forming Moses? He was a shepherd. He spent days, months, years on end with sheep in the desert. That was God's chosen way. If you were going to train someone to be the deliverer of your people, what would, you, what would your training course be? What would you think? Well, we might send them to university and get a degree, and then we'll get some practical training, leadership skills, insights, all these kind of things, how to manage people, how to organise a nation, maybe something like economics or politics or something. If you're running a big group of people, how do you do that? How do you form a cabinet? How do you form a government? No, sheep. That's what God said, sheep. You need sheep and lots of them and you need a lot of time with them. Forty years with sheep, he said to Moses. David, you're going to be my king. You're going to lead my people. That's going to be fantastic. You're going to sit on a throne and you're going to rule. Do you know how the best way to get you there? You need to be a fugitive on the run with people trying to kill you. That's the best way to get you to be my king. You know, if I was David, I said, oh, maybe I don't want to sign up for this quite yet. But he spent much of that early life on the run the, young, the king before him, Saul, trying to kill him regularly, sending men after him, hiding in rocks. At one point, he had to pretend to be mad to kind of avoid them catching him. He had to pretend to be crazy. Joseph, you're going to have your brothers bow down to you. Um, how do I get you there? Well, the first thing is they're going to beat you up and sell you into slavery. That will really help you. Then when you're in a slave, I'm going to get someone to falsely accuse you of rape and get you thrown in prison. That will get you ready for what I want to do. When you're in prison, you're going to do a good job, but the guys you serve and guys you help out are just going to forget about you as soon as they get out, and you're going to stay longer in prison, even though they promise to come and put a good word in for you. That's going to get you to that position. What about Abraham? Says Abraham, he actually said, I'm going to give you a son, but I'm also going to give you this land. The land you're staring at, you're standing in, this is going to be your descendants. This is going to belong to you. Abraham never had it for himself. He was a wandering nomad. His entire life. He never actually physically got the land, even though it was promised to him and his people. And of course, what about the ultimate example, Jesus? What's God's way of doing it? God says, I want a people for myself. I want to reconcile to myself. I want to save them. How do I do it? Well, I come and I die. That's how I do it. I die in the most horrific, bloody way possible. Publicly humiliated. Beaten and rejected by my followers. Bearing the wrath of my father for the sins of the world. That's why people call it foolishness. God's way of doing things is not our ways. If God did it our ways, our way, I imagine it would be a complete disaster. 
because we would get it all wrong and it would be self-centred and we wouldn't see God's purposes worked out. And I, I've, I've experienced that when you kind of get to what God's called to you, it all makes sense, but only when you look backwards. Sometimes trying to understand it forward doesn't quite compute, but when you get there and you look back, you think, I see what you were doing, God. I see how you brought me to this place. And for me, becoming, going back to that example of me being called into leadership and in the process my first experience of leadership, uh, senior leadership in the church, ended really badly for, Mel- for Melanie and I. We were uh, basically victims of abuse. Um, we ended up basically being kind of run out of the church. It just didn't work out well for us. And this is what God had called me to. He basically said, um, you know, I, in leadership I was kind of advancing and thinking, this is the way you want me to go. Ended very badly. We then... Uh, moved from there and ended up in um, Bishop Stalford there, the, the leaders of the church there kind of took us in and we received an awful lot of healing from that process I was part of an excellent team of leaders, the elders of the church there which restored my faith in leadership which had been severely damaged I thought I didn't want, didn't want to be one of these leaders I've seen what they can do but actually being part of that and being part of a, a strong church a brilliant church with lots of vibrancy and things going on was part of our formation and development, part of our healing. I got to preach in much bigger contexts than I had before. I got to lead in much bigger contexts than I had before. And then when God actually said, right, it's time to go now and you're going to take on the leadership of something, I was in a position in a church where God had put it on the hearts of many people in the church say, we'll come with you and we will help you do that. And so what seemed to me like a disaster um, happening in our lives actually turned out God turned around and turned for good but at the time if you asked me I would say this is not going well and this isn't the direction I want my life to be going is it but yet God um, brought it for good but then even when we arrived here I felt God took it in the wrong direction you know I had a word with him about it you know just to clear things up but we arrived here having been in church event for probably seven or eight years kind of this was my job this is what I knew how to do this was my experience but when we arrived here, God said, well, actually, I need you to go back to your classroom because I'd been a teacher beforehand, primary school teacher, and he called me out of that into church sort of ministry leadership. And we arrived here, and I'm thinking, right, you need to get on leading the church. He says, no, you need to go back to your classroom. And I'm thinking, I haven't been in a classroom for about seven or eight years, and the idea of going back there terrifies me in a city with loads of, you know, different environment that I'm used to. And I, and I felt God was going to do supply teaching, which is basically, you know, you do one day at a time in various schools and the agency will literally send you anywhere. You get a call in the morning, can you go to this school here? You teach a day, you get your time sheet signed off and then you leave, which is quite interesting because if they don't call, you don't work. And if you don't work, you don't get paid. Um, so that's what I was like, Lord, this isn't quite what I had in mind. I wanted a bit more stability. I need a little bit more kind of security in what I'm doing, make sure solid income so we can give some time to church. But God said, no, go back to your classroom. But even that was a formative time, actually going back, doing that job, getting to know the city, getting to know the people in it. So there is a way God does things, and it's different to the way we might do it. And the third thing, there is a response. There is a response when... God's acting in your life when you're following his lead. There will be a response from people. What happened with Jesus? They were muttering about him. You've got the, the authorities trying to catch him, kill him, grab hold of him. You've got the people kind of muttering and talking about him. Who is this guy? Is he a good guy? No, I don't think he's a good guy. I think he's dodgy. I think he's trying to lead people astray. Others saying, well, I'm not so sure. Even his brothers 
were trying to say stuff to him, but they had got it wrong. They had missed him. They were saying, go on, be open. Let everyone know who you are. They didn't grasp it. And the truth is, when you follow God and what he's doing, there will be a kickback. It will come from the world around you who will not like what you're doing to serve God. Jesus is very clear. The world is evil and will not um, doesn't like God working, doesn't like the things he's doing out. It might even come from your own family. It can come from misunderstanding. They just don't get you. It can come out of people's insecurities like the Jewish leaders. They were just like, they were threatened by Jesus. And so they wanted to attack him. It come from, can come from jealousy. People seeing God doing stuff in your life and they're actually, they're jealous for it or they want hold of it themselves. It can be mild or it can be openly hostile. Um, and antagonism. And what I would submit to you today, whatever you're doing, be ready for it. Because it's going to come. Don't be surprised. Yeah, I think it even says that, doesn't it? Do not be surprised at the trials you are going through. I think Paul writes in one of his letters. It's brilliant. Don't be surprised. Duh, it was coming. And so that's what we're facing. I remember, um, for me, one of the thing, first uh, things I, I, um, I, I kind of opposition I got was when I was following God was when I became a Christian and I had to go and tell my parents who were nominal church goers at the time, um, that I wanted to be baptised as a believer. I had, I'd been baptised as a teeny tiny baby that I didn't remember. And, and reflecting on the scriptures and thinking and praying about it, I came to the decision in my heart that actually God wanted me as a believer to be baptised. As a follower of Jesus, I think that's what my response should be. So I had to go and talk to my mum and dad and say, Mum... Dad, I want to be baptised as a believer. I'd like to come and be part of the sort of celebration in the church I was in at university. But I, I want that. And you can tell mum and dad's face was just like, because they were kind of um, sort of uh, just church-going Anglicans. That was their background. I don't, they didn't have a living faith um, at the time. But they were like, but you've been baptised as a child. And you could feel the kind of the, the, the opposition ratchet up. And I had to kind of think, what do I do at this point? Do I cave? And just say to me, right, I'm sorry. Or do I, I say, I, I honestly believe this is truth before God. I believe this is my own decision. And that was a mild one because actually having sort of had a conversation with them, they were both um, really good about it. They came to my baptism, which then they came to my brother's baptism, which led to them actually getting saved. So it was all good. But there was that moment when I thought, I've got to dig in because the opposition is coming. And even for me, in my calling to be cut in, into leadership, I was, as I alluded to, I was... I, I was on the end of poor leadership and felt crushed. The first person I ever told outside Melanie that um, I really felt God had called me to one day lead a church. That was kind of where I honestly felt. And it took me, my nature, my personality is very much more, I keep things close to my chest, I'm much more of a private individual. But I remember actually going through, you know, months and months, and I finally spoke to a church and said, this is what I feel. God has called me to. You know, I've got, this has kind of been said, I, I just, I've got this sense, you know, this is what I've been praying about, this is what I've been wrestling with, but I came to that place and I told, the first guy I told, let me straight in the eye, says, you'll never be a church leader. That's what I got. Bang. And I have to believe he was well-meaning in what he said, but it was like a truck hit me. I remember going home to Melanie at that point, we were recently married, and I remember saying, I told him, and he said it would never happen. And I remember just being utterly devastated, just like, I've been run over by a bus. That's something I really felt God had said to me. And I had to go through a process of then going back to God and saying, God, what did you say? What am I going to hold on to within that? 
And that's kind of led me to here. But there was that opposition. Don't be surprised when it came. It comes. All right. So there we've looked at, there's a timing, there's a way, and there is a response. Three things for you guys. I'll just finish off a little bit of application. For what do you do right now? You're all here. You're in a situation. If you're a believer, God has called you to something in your life. There'll be things on your heart. Even as I've been speaking, you'll be reminded of things. You know, what you want to do in God. Even if you kind of haven't got anything specific, but you think, I want to serve God. I want to give myself to his purpose in this life. Building his church. Seeing men and women come to know him. All those kind of things. What do we do now, practically, to help us? How do we make, make um, good of the waiting period, which most of our life is? If you notice, most of our life is waiting for the next thing. How do we actually just not sit around waiting, but be active in that time? Um, and so here's three things that we'll just end with. First one, do what is right in front of you and do it well. Do what is right in front of you and do it well. Wherever you find yourself at this moment, do it well. Do it for the glory of God. Work as if you work with all your might. That it's only God who's watching. He's the one you're serving. Uh, don't waste your time looking to the future and wishing away. Take hold of what's ever in front of you and work at it with gusto. It will prepare you. It will be part of your forming process. So wherever you find yourself, whatever job you're doing now, whatever that job, whether it's paid employment, whether it's... Um, you're a kind of a full-time parent, even if you're, you're not actually employed at the moment. You're, you're retiring and you're doing other things that you're not getting paid for. Whatever it is, work at it and do it well. Be the best that you can be at that job. Whether you're married and you have a spouse, whether you're um, a parent and you have children, whatever you're doing, serving, volunteering in the church and that kind of thing, do it well with everything you've got. Everything you've got. For me, when I came here and I had to go back to my classroom and teach and do that, I kind of had to go through this process. All right, God, I know I've been called here to to kind of help start a church. I've got a team that has come to join me. I have a responsibility then to lead them. I am married um, and I have, uh, right at the beginning, we just had Levi. We have one child. So my plate is full of stuff to do that I can get on with. And I know you're calling them. I know you've called me to do them. You've called me to be married. You've called me to be Levi's dad. I could have easily just put teaching at the side and said, right, I'll just, I'll just do it, but it's not, it's not that important. But actually, I suddenly realised, if I'm teaching two or three days a week, that's a really large part of my time that, I've got to, that I'm now giving myself to. And if I don't give myself to try and be the best teacher I could possibly be, I'm actually missing out on what God is trying to teach me and do with me. So I, I would go into school, and I went into all sorts of schools. Schools that I would think are wonderful, and I'd love my son to go there. And schools that I think, not a chance on this planet, ever, would you ever set foot in a school like this. But I had to go and then be the teacher. So I had the extremes, but I, had to, I, I woke up every day thinking, God, if you give me work today, I will go and I'll try and be the best competent teacher that I can possibly be. Even though I'm going into a situation, I don't know how old the kids will be, I don't know what I'm going to have to teach them today, I want to go and work at it. And I try to keep that attitude throughout that time that I was teaching, because that's what God had put in front of me. That was the thing he had called me to do, among everything else, and I couldn't just neglect one and do the other. I had to go at it. The second thing, remind yourself what God has said. Write it down. If you feel that God has spoken to you about something, 
whether you've been praying, whether you've been reading the, the, the scriptures and you felt something come to you, whether you felt God has kind of just dropped something in your heart or someone else has spoken something to you, prophesied over you or said something to you, write it down. Keep a hold of it. Date it. Keep it. Review it. Remember it. Keep coming back to it. And actually just grab hold of it. Don't let it go. In the Old Testament, if you read through that, when God did something pretty impressive, they, they responded. What did they do? They built an altar out of stones. They, got a, they basically built a pile of stones. And the reason they built a pile of stones was to remind them what God had done. When they entered the Promised Land, they crossed the Jordan. They said they got to the other side and they built an altar of stones. They said, this is where God brought us into the land. This was something we could look back on in generations to come. When our children have grown up and they say, Dad, what's that? You say, that's where the Lord came and brought us into the land. The Lord delivered us. So it was a practice then. And for us, write it down. Do whatever you do. Put it in your journal. Write it down. I've got a journal I kind of try and do some days a week. But I tend to put in the front things that God had said. So I, every time I kind of open it, I get to see them to remind myself. You can stick it on post-it notes, put it on your mirror, whatever you do. Keep reminding them. Keep putting it in the forefront. We even do it here. Where are we going as a church? I preach about it once a term. Did it last week. Just to remind us, don't forget what God has called us to. He's called us to be a a body of people. And he's given us something specific. And I'll keep coming back to that so you don't forget. I'll just jump on you in three weeks' time. Grab you and say, what has God called us to church to? If they don't come out your mouth. (laughs) Just saying. Detention, I'm a teacher. But I keep coming back to it to remind us as a body where we're going. But it's the same for you as an individual. What has God called you to? What are you hanging on to? For me, God has fulfilled some things. But there are other things He hasn't that I'm still hanging on to, saying, God, you know, remind myself, this is what you've called me to. Last one brings it together. The third one is uh, repent and pray. Repent and pray. Probably good to do it in that order. Repent. We all know we've been through times when we've tried to tell God how to do his job. And we've all felt very justified in that. Lord, if you just listen to me, and if you follow the instructions that I give you, everything will be fine. There's times we've done that. We've tried to take God's position. But when you reflect on that, it's just one of the most ridiculous things you could do. Tell the Lord of eternity how to do stuff. There's times when we've got frustrated and angry at him that he hasn't done what we've asked him to do. There's times when we've tried to go our own way and make things come about by our own kind of skills, even manipulate events to try and get to where we want to go. And those times we need to regularly come back to God and repent, turn around and go their way. Bring God, ask for his forgiveness, apologise for actions, apologise for the, the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And say, no God, we don't do it. We will rely on your way. Because your ways are higher than our ways. Your ways are better. You are infinite. You know everything. And not only just know everything, you are, you are loving and kind and gracious. And compassionate and merciful to sinners like us. And so, you know, we come back to God. So we repent. And the, 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 the other side of that is to pray. To pray and pray and pray. And say, God, fulfill your promises. Fulfill your word. Fulfill what you've said. Do it. We had Jonathan Olivia, we did the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And we had some time worshiping, but then we just brought back to God what he had said to us as a church. God, you said these things. Please fulfill them. Do them. 
amongst us. We had an excellent time praying and just bringing those kind of things back to God and saying, God, fulfill your word to us as a church. Build us as a church. Do the things that we find written in, in your word in our lives, in our friends' lives. Save people, bring them in, add to us as a people. And we are called to be